Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 70. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about black cemeteries. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Dr. Antoinette Jackson and Delon Justinville on the show. And you're probably all familiar with Dr. Jackson. She's been on the show a couple times. So she was on first the Ethnography with African Descendant Communities episode, and then also on the Heritage Tourism and Race episode. Um, So those were episodes 48 and 16, uh, for those of you who are interested in checking those out as well. But for those of you who may not know Dr. Jackson, would you mind introducing yourself? Yes, I'm uh, Professor Antoinette Jackson. Uh, I am a professor and chair, actually, now in the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. I am the director of the USF Heritage Research Lab, and most recently, I am the founder of the Black Cemetery Network. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, very excited to have you back on the show. Definitely Dr. Jackson's always a fan favorite, so very excited and also very excited to have Delon Justinville on the show. I'm really excited because this episode, it's very cool that we have an anthropologist. It's very very exciting because we're going to have a cultural anthropologist, ethnographer on the show and Delon, well, I'll let you introduce yourself and your background. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me today. I'm a, well, my name is Dawn Justinville, as you've heard. I'm a biologically and archaeologically trained anthropologist. My approach, I bring together, I attempt to bring together, rather, Black studies, critical geography, and um, cultural history to, you know, approach what I'm calling an anthropology of Black remains, uh, through which I try to interrogate the various afterlives of slavery that continue to affect Black life and death today. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to both of you today because uh, lots, of, lots of different perspectives there from <laughs> ethnographic cultural anthropology, which, as we all know, is, is my discipline. So I'm always excited when I get to have another cultural anthropologist on the show. And then, you know, biological and archaeological backgrounds with Delon. So I think it's really exciting to be able to touch on this topic from, from some different directions. So both of you, to get us started, would you tell us more about your work with Black Cemeteries? And Dr. Jackson, let's start with you again. Yes. Uh, like you probably know from reading some of my previous work, my interest in general is the silences in national records and archives about Black people, under, underrepresented communities, and how to deal with that, how to address that. And so my entree into uh, Black cemeteries came as a result of, you know, starting to learn and hear more and more about erased Black cemeteries in the Tampa Bay area. As you know, or probably know, in the ni- in 2019 and 2020, a rather large African-American cemetery in the Tampa Bay area, Zion Cemetery, was uncovered Uh, and discovered right uh, in the middle of the city with no one knowing that 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 a housing complex was sitting on top of a cemetery. And it was the Tampa Bay Times and uh, Ray Reed, a local historian who actually had um, been doing prior research on that and and kind of gave that a tip. And then uh, Florida Archaeology Network and uh, Cardno and several other archaeological firms actually did the GPR, the ground penetrating radar, and confirmed that, yes, indeed, there was a cemetery in which the housing complex, Robles Park housing complex, was sitting on top of. 
And so this became a, you know, a national story, but really a big local story. And it really caught my attention about how, how is it that you would uh, just now be learning that there is a cemetery underneath a housing complex all of these years later. And so that, that piqued my interest. And then at the same time, the uh, University of South Florida issued a call for proposals following the George Floyd murder in uh, 2020 for, you know, studying, understanding blackness and uh, addressing anti-black racism. And one of the things was, what can we do that's important to the community? What kind of uh, understandings and research can we do that would get at this question and involve something that's really pertinent to the community? So mar- uh, marrying those two things t- together the call for proposal and then what was going on in the news right at that time, the, the, the tension around finding Black Cemetery underneath the housing complex. I proposed a project that would look at that in more detail because I was hearing from the archaeological perspective and, and those perspectives that I hadn't heard from the living community perspective, the impact that it was having on present day peoples and communities and wanted to find out more in the present about what what, what it meant. So I put together a team and we started uh, to do research specifically on Zion Cemetery and then three others that actually had also surfaced in the St. Petersburg area around the same time. So it was this pressure, this, this, this presence of this question of why are these black cemeteries being erased and have been erased and why aren't we, why are we just finding out about it? So that again, got into the things that I've already been questioning, like underrepresented communities, untold stories. And now here we have this tension about erased black cemeteries right here in my community and something that, you know, the university uh, had resources and a wherewithal to, um, you know, help address. So that is how I actually got involved on a very particular project and then became more and more uh, interested in what was going on in terms of the national conversation and how our story and issues within the Tampa Bay area with uh, the Zion Cemetery and the three cemeteries in um, particular in St. Petersburg, which were under Tropicana Field parking lot, which is a baseball stadium. How can we, you know, address this? What are the, why is this happening? And so that was my entree uh, into this discussion of black cemeteries. And it's been uh, since 2020, it's been full steam ahead since then. So um I'll just leave off with that right now, but that's what that's how I entered the topic really more specifically in terms of erased black cemeteries. And Deland, what about you? My entree into uh, uh, studying black cemeteries. Let's see. So, believe it or not, I actually began as a Mediterraneanist um, archaeologist and. Expanding my methodology in um, skeletal research, I began to learn more about the histories of, of biological anthropology and bioarchaeology in these legacies of scientific racism. And it was through that angle with, through which I began looking more into, you know, the, these intersections of um, race, racism, anti-Blackness, and, and anthropology. Then I began to learn about the African burial ground in New York City. And from there, I kind of just completely switched my, uh, shifted my focus to this kind of more this present day reality that um, I which sets for, I'm just found myself so much more uh, personally attached to and personally compelled by. And so, which led, led me to my current dissertation project, which is on the Georgetown, which focuses on the Georgetown neighborhood of uh, Washington, D.C., where over these past two, almost two decades, whenever one of these, uh, I, I don't know, now multi million dollar houses on this block do a home renovation project that goes below street level, they happen upon remains. And research to date has shown a likelihood of African ancestry and um, qualitative studies of these remains. And I'm hoping to do more research into uh, what I'm attempting to do is find out who these individuals were and what, what's, what's their relationship to the space of this site. And also, you know, what, what it means for, uh, you know, Black life, and Black deaths to go through these multiple levels of interlocking and overlapping erasure. And then, you know, how can we use these stories around death to rearticulate narratives about life? Because I'm trying to push my work, my own work in the field, not just stop at you know, the, the doorsteps of death, that um, we have too many narratives of that already. Yeah, okay. So I'm really fascinated by how you would look at something like that. What methods, and, and starting with Deland, just 
because biological anthropology is is more of a mystery to me. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the the methods that you're planning on using in in this specific work? So, bioarchaeologically speaking, you know, when we're excavating uh, a cemetery, the, the primary element of the, the, the go to is is these are the human remains wherein we look through these different instances of um, skeletal development that relate to, that have, that, you know, studies have shown have relate to likelihood of um, where you are descended from geographically and other instances that show age at time of death, other instances that show likelihood of what we perceive to be biological sex, but which happen across many elements of the human, of the human skeleton, whether it be the cranium or the pelvis, but uh, seeing as how these these uh these, this form of study is so rooted in sort of this uh, kind of like a essentialist form of like thinking of of of, of research, it's always it's it's critically important to pair that with you know the material elements from the excavation as well. So you have the the, the coffin nails that could be uh, you know placed in sort of a chronological time period. You have other elements of material culture. You have the stratigraphy, which is a different layering in the burial ground. But what I have found most critical, and this actually speaks to something Dr. Jackson had mentioned in my research, is when you re- when you then turn to the archival um, elements, the, the archival data, it's not just looking through cemetery records or looking through census data or looking through you know narratives of the area that you were that that, yeah, that you're researching or even um even historical maps, specifically looking at who isn't present in those narratives who isn't present in that data sometimes can give you even more of an insight into, into your project. So if I'm looking, if I'm looking at a site that I think is um, in the 19th century, you know, across the 1800s and looking at a historical map and I'm looking at these different, you know, plantation owners' names and no one else, I, you know, I then might have some inkling or some idea to go to their records and see what sort of data details on the enslaved peoples that they had in that property, you know, looking at certain, mainstream institutional or state archives and finding out what sort of counter histories you can tell from what isn't present. And from there, one of my favorite, if you can have a favorite aspect of this research, <laughs> are oral histories and personal narratives. These are always without fail. It's always the narratives of the of, of those most marginalized, forcibly marginalized in the area, um, black, impoverished or otherwise, that give me the most insight into the context within I within which I work. So um those are some of the, that was a lot, I'm sorry. Those are some of like the main uh, approaches that begin biologically and archaeologically, but that always venture into the cultural and then and, and the narrative. Well, you are definitely preaching to the choir with this group with <laughs> oral yes. histories yes. being the best. <laughs> the best, the best always, hands down. <laughs> well, we are not going to argue with you there. Dr. Jackson, what about you? <laughs> Well, first of all, yes, our second, third, and fourth world <laughs> history. So that that is that is a given. Yeah, I think it really brings up uh, one of the, the the core reasons for the kind of work that I do. Because when you think about, especially cemeteries and things like that, people are all always thinking that's in the past, that's old, that's how, how do how do we connect with that? And one of the primary things that uh, the work that I do around cemeteries bring to the forefront, again, is partly what I mentioned, what was missing with the Zion or what was a gap in some of the Zion research was, why is this important today? Like, why is it important? Who is it important to today? How do we link what, what is being found today with these with our current and contemporary concerns and issues? And that's the, the approach using ethnography and my team talking to current day people, who are the people who are living in those housing, in that housing complex over top of the cemetery? How does an understanding of of their relationship to that space today help us think about, you know, not only today, but also in the past? And how do we talk about people's connection with not knowing this history? And what does that mean? And moving from the present back into how do these erasures happen What's the significance of erasing or forgetting about a black cemetery? How does that happen in the present? Uh, what does that mean to people today? And so the work that I do tries to connect you know, people to the conversation through various methods. One, again, as we already mentioned, was you know, doing oral histories with people who are contemporarily 
impacted by what's going on. Uh, also maybe doing histories and uh, having interviews with people who may have had family members in some way, shape or form connected to these sites. So how do we learn about these sites from the perspective of people who uh, maybe have family or have other types of connections to these cemeteries? And then how do we get people interested? And one of the other ways that uh, I, the work that I do, we engage with multitude of communities, multidisciplinary, meaning not only the, the bioarchaeologists, bio forensic anthropologists, and you know, a range of historians, but also artists. And what I found mm. most recently in this, in this uh, cemetery work that I've done was the connection that my project team in, uh, has made with the art- artistic community, meaning we've engaged with spoken word poets and writers, and they've a- actually taken the materials that we as researchers, as ethnographers and or historians and other things have cr- collected and created creative works. How do you bring that alive and connect with people emotionally? Because this is a very intense and an emotional situation to be connected with a cemetery in in general, but how do you tap into that emotion and how do you get people interested through those emotional kinds of connections beyond just the story on a page? So the the spoken word artists, the poets, uh, and the writers have helped us do that to bring these archives and the materials that we uh, as scientists, regardless, oral historians, ethnographers, bioarchaeologists, we're still considered, you know, more science or more uh, people who are academics. So how do you get out of that academic mode and, and engage with people where they are and in other kinds of domains, especially around something as important as burials and, and cemeteries and, and honoring the dead? Uh, because that has way more connections than, than just our, our rote research. Not that it's not important, but it also embodies so much, uh, so many other things. And at the time that a person's family buried them at these sites, they had some type of ritual probably and connection and, and send off that we are, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge that sacredness of those grounds as well. So how do you do all that? So that's one of the big pieces, I think, that I've learned and incorporated way more than I've done in any of my other research with this Black cemetery projects have been these connections with the creative community, you know, and and engaging with those kind of conversations in, in addition to archival work, genealogy, genealogical work and historical work and ethnographic work. So that I think that's one of the big things that that I want to um, bring to light this partnership with that our project team has had and has with the artistic community. And, and, and one more final thing is, that, and I haven't talked about the Black Cemetery Network, but that was an outgrowth of the project that uh, I was talking about, the African-American Burial Ground Project that uh, we started around in response to the, the, the cemeteries that are being found in Tampa. But if you go out to the Black Cemetery Network website, you'll see not only we, we represent some of the work of the artists, the spoken word artists, but the, the website itself was deliberately created by some of the creative folk on our team to embody that, <laughs> the visual <laughs> component. So we really took that into account. How do you feel on the site? Not just a website. The website was created with that level of intention around presentation and you know creativity with and respect for the dead in terms of just uh, highlighting that and more, more than just uh, basic website. So it's all part of the intentionality of the work we have been doing and we do with the uh, Black Cemeteries on our our project team. Yeah, that's amazing. And I am currently Googling the Black Cemetery Network. (laughs) Um, It it looks like a really beautiful website. So we will definitely have a link to that in the show notes. And it's amazing. It's amazing how quickly it goes, but we are already at our first break point and we will be back talk more about this here in a minute pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So we're back and I have a million and one questions to ask the two of you <laughs> as per the usual. But what I want to start with is you both touched on this a little bit. And so I want to I want to dive a little bit deeper. You mentioned some of the challenges in working with Black cemeteries, the research challenges. Um, you mentioned a couple of different types of challenges already. So if if you could speak to that a little bit more and if there's any specific barriers uh, to learning about or preserving these sites that, that we should all know about. Yeah, some of some of the barriers and or some of the challenges, I guess, or research challenges that I've I've been finding or my team and I have found in terms of working with black cemeteries is first of all, it's easy to think or it's sometimes people think that their site, their place is the only place or they're isolated and they there are no other people working on this or this is not as important as you know as it is. Uh, because it's a lot of isolation and a lot of, and also a lot of attempts to really marginalize these kinds of, uh, often these types of stories or these types of issues. And so uh, thinking about Tampa and the stories that were coming out there, uh, one of the challenges is how do we, uh, I started looking around and realizing that, yeah, these are stories and these are issues that are not just particular to Tampa. And why is that? Again, this begs the question on a bigger, bigger perspective, you know, more systemic issues, not only uh, in the South or not only in Florida, but elsewhere that these questions and these, you know, black cemeteries are, are going, you know, uh, being abandoned, erased, uh, not talked about, underrepresented in, in national conversations. So how do we bring these kinds of conversations together and bring more people into the conversation. So the challenges challenge to me was how to have a create a space for people to share these stories that are various at a various kinds of connections to these stories. They could be, you know, uh, a cemetery uh, associated with a church. It could be a cemetery, you know, that is associated with uh, an, an entire community with lots of resources, or it could be you know, a very small family cemetery or something like that. So how do we get all of those things and reasons in conversation to create a sense of, of uh, connection and power, uh, power numbers, power in, um, in, in, in educating people on, on what these kinds of various kinds of circumstances are? So I, uh, one of the things that, uh, that came out of the work we were doing, particularly in Tampa, was the thinking about this thing we call the Black Cemetery Network, a space, a digital or, or uh, a digital space where people can, I call it, and we call it really the front porch <laughs> for other people working on these kind of conversations elsewhere. So if you're working anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, really, and you want to, you know, you want to put your your cemetery, your your site in conversation with others, it's just, just as easy as submitting that to the, the network and we've automated it now and created it and made it easier even as it's evolving. So it's a, it's a big giant porch or archival landscape where people can put their stories and enter things the way they want it. And we'll, we'll put that out there for everybody to see and learn from. So people submit their pictures, they submit their, uh, you know, site history we can uh, work with them to 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 add you know whatever they need to add to the to the network and to follow up. So you know, so this became a platform and put a lot of different people in conversation, and it's been so exciting for us to watch it grow uh, from when it launched one year ago in June till now, launched with about thirteen 
uh, sites and we worked with regional organizations like the African American Cemetery Coalition in North Carolina. And we had the uh, uh, Cemetery Coalition right here in Tampa Bay. And those were some of the early people who put their cemetery sites on the network and watching it grow to 60 sites now all, all around the country. For I think as far west right now we have as Texas and as far north as uh, I think Nantucket is where we have somebody that has entered a, a site. So it is so fun and uh, to see it grow and to have it become a, it's alive as an active database, meaning again, people go out there and do research around those sites. I just had a lady uh, from one of the local universities call and ask me if her class, her English class could use the black cemetery network to, you know, do some kinds of, uh, use their English writing learning skills and digital writing skills to help do things on the Black Cemetery Network. So they're going to pick a cemetery or two and really kind of drill down and tell some of the stories, do some of the research around some of the people buried that they can find that are buried in the site and, and, and write biographies and do some other kinds of creative presentations of that uh, information. So it's, it's an active site as well as a repository in some ways. So it's not stagnant and people do things from writing poems to, like I said, to uh, posting things on, on social media based on what they learned and found on the Black Cemetery Network. So the network is, a, is, is, is very powerful in you know, connecting these stories and connecting people across the country, which I think raises the temperature on what needs to be done in terms of the systemic nature of this problem. Like, how do we get at legislation and all those kinds of things? But people have concrete stories, concrete ways of seeing that this impacts people and families and communities all across the country. And so the site gives more power to those kind of conversa- conversations that people are having in the, at the legislative level and the kinds of work that, again, archaeologists and bioarchaeologists are sharing with us. So people are act even more engaged with the kind of information that comes out uh, from other kinds of uh, entities as well and people doing work. So it, 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 it raises the level of the conversation to be more inclusive. Well, it sounds like you just put a challenge out there that we need to get uh, some international sites in here. So so if you know of any sites, send them our way. But especially let's get some international ones in there. I think that'd be really interesting. So, yeah, check out the website. Also, they have a great Twitter account. So if you're on Twitter, sign up and, and follow there as well. But yeah, yeah, let's get let's get uh, that 60 number up. Okay, so yes, we yes, we want <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Deland, what about you? Yeah. What research challenges have you have you faced in your work? You know, in terms of research challenges, I really see it within that I've confronted at least. I, they really fall within two categories for me, which are just preservation and methods. And with regard to preservation, I'm even thinking of the Black Cemetery Network, and I'm so happy that someone like Dr. Jackson is taking on this charge because, you know, we've seen previous iterations that that somehow like fizzled out and especially thinking about, you know, let's like not recreating the wheel and having people who are invested in this work. What will it take for an initiative like this, like that black, the Black Cemetery Network is doing so successfully to maintain its 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 presence and to maintain the work that it's doing? I'm thinking of a former um, National Endowment of the Humanities Initiative that kind of fell off. Fordham University when, when began, began a catalog. And, and what does it say about the difficulty in, in having one of these types of projects become a mainstay and, and take on longevity? And what is that, how is that a reflection of the ways that Black histories are treated more broadly? Also, and we can think of this preservation in terms of, you know, whether it's cemetery records, whether it's state records, whether it's um, other community initiatives that are taking on this sort of challenge of preserving um, Black burial grounds. What, what, what materials do they have to work with to, you know, to, to really invest in um, to, to invest in these initiatives, you know, taking on a sort of like life of their own, as opposed to falling off whenever the, uh, the the hype around the topic goes down, if you will. In terms of methods, one way I try to frame it is um, for those who have always been treated in excess of the law and in excess of mainstream social life standards, how can we choose? Like, well, it's never going to be possible 
to just stay within one realm of like thought or one one space of practice we always we will have to go go beyond or go or also go you know get into a state of be in excess of disciplinary practices to approach how we study black life and death there's a sort of like you know nuance i hate using that word that needs to be um uh, assumed when approaching this topic you know i think back to again dr jackson has this great uh, uh, framing of forensic ethnography and how do we bring in ethnographic practice into these typical investigations of crime and death you know how do we expand upon like the typical scientific or 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 or, or practical standards that we use to name these spaces or to locate these spaces and you know there are, there are these other approaches. I think of just uh, along the along lines of where anthropology has turned in terms of like biocultural studies, bringing the, together these two halves of the discipline, um, if you will. And it's just that these are the kinds of sort of like intersecting frames of thought that go beyond just like one typical practice or one typical standard that we need to really, as opposed to you know starting in a in a in a, in a, in a typical archaeological approach you know we need to start from these intersecting and these these multidisciplinary approaches this needs to be our beginning point for approaching these lives that are so you know that are erased in such complicated ways you know spatially erased um socially erased you know uh intellectually erased so uh these are these are the the, the challenges i've really uh have been confronting a lot of in my research how do we most appropriately articulate these lives that have been lost so violently and, and following up, Delon, I really like uh, what you're saying about this, the understanding of erasure. Uh, I think we need to understand using the language of erasure. Some people say stolen. Other people say marginalized and underrepresented, showing that it's a challenge. Like these things were deliberately and actively, uh, in many cases, done to Black spaces and uh, sacred sites, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to when you use the word abandoned and lost, that people oftentimes say abandoned African-American cemeteries are lost as if people suddenly, you know, lost interest in their cemeteries and, and just moved away and with no thought and, and no responsibility. And I know legally sometimes there is, uh, or technically sometimes from archaeological standpoints, there uh, abandon means certain things. Mm-hmm. But when the general public hears the word abandon or lost, they, they kind of look at it as a blame kind of thing. And yes. I think it is appropriate for us to think about when we use a language, what we want people to come away with, the challenge that we want them to have around what to do about these sites or what, what can be done and how did they get there and how did the situation happen in the first place. So, yes, I agree with you saying we have to move it out of the maybe the academic or the archaeological only or the anthropological sites perspective only and look at it politically legally yes, uh, yes ethically these are these are the areas where you really move the ball i'm finding working with black cemeteries is the legal and the political mm-hmm. <laughs> the political will that has to happen to get the the proper legislation to get the proper funding and you mentioned sustaining these kinds of projects and to do that you need these types of uh, this type of recognition and this type of a funding capacity aimed at a problem that was, you know, systemically created in many cases with respect to Black cemeteries. So I think really, I, I really like, Delon, all the kinds of things you were saying about the import of, of expanding uh, these kind of conversations out, outside of our, maybe our particular fields to other areas that we may not normally talk about. Thank you. Well, that coming from you, Dr. Jackson, I, wow, I, I really, I can't but tell you how much I appreciate <laughs> um, And I'm so happy you brought up language. And back to a point you brought up before, too, about, you know, the different sorts of expression. The, the language that you're really pushing how we're using and being so intentional for me has, uh, I'm thinking about, when you said abandon and how that, 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 that invokes sort of blame. You know, I worked at an mm-hmm. exhibition in 2019, summer 2019, at American University, where I'm a, a doctoral candidate plans to prosper you and one of the three freedmen towns uh, who are now looking to, to, who are working around the different instances of their black cemeteries being erased or or, or 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 harmed by the state or lack of state attention you know one of the key issues there were newspaper reports and documentaries constantly using this these language this language around like mm-hmm. why this lack of care is a reflection mm-hmm. of the community as a reflect as opposed to a reflection of state violence. Even if the mm-hmm. state is ignoring, that's indirectly still an imposition of state violence. And you know what language 
does the community want to use to name this violence as well as then what language can be used to appropriately translate it into political action i really really think that language you know is something that um it's not that it hasn't taken up the, the the amount of space that it needs to. I just think there's so much more that needs to be like uh, given attention to with how language plays a role in this work. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, and I, I know in the when we uh, the state of Florida set up a task force to look into, and the name of the task force it was it was assigned into law. This task force HB 37 in 2021 to spend a year to study this issue of abandoned African-American cemeteries. And one of the first, and I was, it was a 10 minute, 10 member task force. And I was one of the people on the task force. And one of the first things our whole task force took up was to challenge this term abandoned Mm -hmm. Mm African-American cemeteries. So it was quite enlightening to have the public hearings and have you know, hear the discussions uh, amongst uh, a panelists, particularly people on the panel who were community members who were, you know, deeply invested because they had family members in some of these cemeteries that we were talking about and really hearing them articulate the challenge of the la- why the language needed to be expanded. Yeah. And we're, we're again, we're already at our second break. I'm really, really enjoying this conversation. And I do just want to, since we're talking about words, take a second to again make a point that we've made on on every episode that Dr. Jackson's been on. Um, but I think, you know, since we're talking about words, another important one that you brought up in the, the first episode we did with you was just the difference between slaves or enslaved people. So I just wanted to throw that one in again, because I think it's really important and really easy to miss that one, but you know, just like abandoned mm-hmm. versus erased, uh, I think it's essential. So, on that note, we're going to go to our second break, but lots more to talk about when we come back. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are back in our conversation about black cemeteries. And I want to keep going with some things that, that you were both just touching on, which is basically your vision basically for where you would like this conversation and movement, political will, legislation, et cetera, where you would like to get to in the future on this topic. I'm trying to be careful with how I word this. I don't want to seem, I don't want to ever position any sort of approach against another, but I really would love to see more around what we understand as I think I'm thinking with Christina Sharp here, her, her quote, though, you know, this call to defend the dead and Norb Say Phillips, you know, to defend the dead. What, what, it, what sort of actions, what sort of measures we can understand will do that kind of labor, will take on that kind of defense work? We know that there have been a, a couple forms of legislation that have been proposed and have been, you know, sort of um, stalled on the congressional floor. About two, a couple, two colleagues of mine, uh, brilliant colleagues of mine, Chip Caldwell and Justin Donovan, we wrote that the article to, you know, craft an AGPRA, something along the lines of an African-American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. But the, the policy and legislation has only ever done so much for for the protection of, of, of Black life and, uh, and for the preservation of our heritage. So I would love to see, you know, in terms of future visions, what community, what, what sort of community projects we can uplift and empower, what sort of institutional leeway can we use to support on the ground work, and what sort of collaborations can we, can we 
propose that will get sort of that will, that will get some of this work done uh, on a sort of regional level and on, on a, and in a very like in a real time in a very practical way in the many ways that we've seen advocacy and activist efforts done um, in black communities in, in historically there's always been an impetus you know do what we can in the now, as opposed to only relying on the very systems and structures that so often get in, get in our way, if I can say. And so, you know, there are these foundations, the Wendergren and NSF and institutions, the Smithsonian, certain colleges and universities are putting a, 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 a putting putting a foot forward in terms of like naming their their investment and in sort of wanting to support this 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 shift in in how black remains writ large are protected, preserved, and and tended to with care. And what does that look like in, in practice? And in that that investment, what does that investment look like at, in terms of like what's happening at the community level? I'm thinking even here in DC, you know, um, building on there's the Montgomery County um, Cemetery inventory, where these both paid and unpaid community cultural workers went back into the archive and found this um, inventory of local cemeteries and saw, saw so many gaps in the system that they themselves chose to do an updated version with particular attention turned towards the cemeteries in the Black cemeteries and other cemeteries in the margins that weren't tended to. So this is the kind of like on the ground community level work I'm thinking about that I think could really be bolstered by the by many avenues of support that could, you know, uh, in, in the meantime, while we wait for policy and legislation to kick in, that could really take on some of that work, um, like I said, that has always been happening in the history of um, advocacy, advocacy and activism. And I would also love to see, a, uh, speaking of collaborations, a lot of um, an intentional speaking across between, you know, in, indigenous resistance and, 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 black, and black resistance in terms of, you know, the, uh, this idea of like erasure of our ancestors. Because when I'm thinking about, and I'm particularly thinking of Tiffany, Tiffany Lafabo King, her book, The Black Shoulds, oh my goodness, you know, um, yeah. chef's if, if I yeah. could. <laughs> she has a chapter in there speaking about how when we're thinking about the erasure of land, what sort of erasures had already come previously to that that we aren't even acknowledging? At my own site, I'm thinking about, you know, these multi-levels of erasure, you know, a multi-million dollar block of homes removed potential black cemetery from the cultural landscape. But we also know that Georgetown was home to a number of, uh, of, of indigenous tribes who were who were first erased before these other secondary, tertiary, coordinary forms of erasure could even happen. So, you know, thinking how we can not, uh, of course, never ever to pit resistances against one another, but to see the 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 to see the the sort of same colonial capitalist root of our ancestral erasure and approach them in a in a in a in a beautifully productive coalition of politic. That that and that's that that work has already begun. So much of the work that I do has been informed by our indigenous support systems that have uh, that have continued to push for NAGPRA to be implemented across nationwide institutions. So this work is already happening. But similar to my previous sentiment, I can I would love to I envision a future where so much more of it is happening in so many more powerful ways. I kind of rambled there. I apologize. No, I mean, I don't think you rambled, but I think really you articulated that it is a comprehensive strategy. And I think often because uh, groups are often marginalized, they're battling all kinds of intensive pressures around funding, around land acknowledgement, that they really don't have a chance a lot of times to think about it in a comprehensive way. People go down their silo and they're fighting their own or, or focused on their own you know, particular issue. And, you know, that is part of the system that creates that kind of pressure for people to, to worry about the thing right in front of them. And I think now uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that these pieces of legislation that are out there right now, the current one, the, the national legislation, uh, 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 H.R. 6805, African-American Burial Grounds Preservation Act, and uh, same with it's the uh, Senate Bill 3667, that has been an evolution in terms of one way to address this issue of preservation of Black cemeteries and inventory and acknowledgement of the, the situation. But that is one, again, that is one resource, the National Park Service or the Department of Interior. 
this problem is so much bigger uh, than that and some of the things you're getting at. So we need to look at housing and urban HUD. We need to look at the Department of Transportation because highways were built over these sites and these kinds of things. These are the big money funders. These are the big levels of institutional structures that are built over top of these people's Black people, Native communities, and things like that. So we don't we we need to diversify and and, and create a comprehensive portfolio and fight on all kinds of fronts because uh, we are often left trying to the, the this current legislation right now can't handle all the things and all the issues and that's we are left all trying to 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 get into that one piece of legislation and get everything done. And that's a very small amount of money and a small amount of reach. So we, you know, we really need to continue to take these concerns that you've outlined, Delenn, and then some of the things that if you look at the Black Cemetery Network, all the different kinds of issues and concerns all these various different groups have and really go after some of the larger aspects of the problem or put it all together. We don't need to just stop at one thing. It's not just one solution. And we shouldn't be concerned with, you know, totally trying to get all of our uh, issues met. So my idea would be to, you know, continue to to diversify these conversations, but actually not lose sight of, for me, this particular issue that I'm focused on are Black cemeteries. But that doesn't put us out of the conversation with all kinds of other communities and groups that have uh, experienced similar things. And that, that means once you elevate it up to these, some other, these other political levels that you can, you know, start to incorporate that. And I, I really think the most underrepresented person in this conversation is uh, the new department of interior uh, uh, secretary. Um, I can't even call her name right now. And I, I love her work right now. And I've been citing it all the time. Jessica, could you, you know, what's that department of, uh, Interior Secretary Deb Halland. Deb Halland, yes. Yeah, yeah. I love, <laughs> yes, Deb Halland's work that she is doing, <laughs> putting all kinds of pressure on the National Park Service. Although I said that's just one entity, but in mm-hmm. that entity, she is really mm-hmm. showing, you know, how to dismantle some of these kind of systemic issues around language. I mean, I saw that she got a lot of these words changed from you know, the derogatory mm-hmm. terms that have been named, uh, some of these sites have been named. I really was impressed. I really am impressed by all yeah. the ways and fronts that she's dealing with these issues. And there's a lot I think we can learn and we should be in conversation definitely directly with someone like that. And again, like I said, up to the housing and urban development level, transportation, <laughs> Buttigieg, get all these people in these because they have pools and resources that can help us address these problems and to deal with these coalitions of people all around the, these local coalitions of people who need funding, these local communities that, and people and individuals who need funding and need the resources. And it's often the caregivers, the descendant communities are maybe the caregivers versus the landowner. Sometimes the property owners are big, you know, gas companies or utility companies or somebody else. They don't, but there are other people who are tending to the graves to the sites. And those folks need the resources to continue the work that they're doing. And they're often overlooked in some of these kinds of legislations that deal with more at the property owner standpoint. So we need to think about all those kinds of things and not lose sight of, like I said, starting at the grassroots level, those people who are actively every day been dealing with these issues and how do we best resource what they're trying to do as we uh, move forward. So my, my uh, vision would be really to learn from these local caregivers, these individual cemetery caregivers and groups who are really working every day uh, to, to memorialize and to, you know, tell these stories and preserve these stories. And so they need, they need all the help that we're doing from the university level to all the levels that we have been addressing in this conversation. So I'm excited to be part of it and to, um, again, to in some way help expand uh, this as best we can from wherever we are, wherever we uh, are, whatever resources we have to bear. I mean, just looking at the Black Cemetery Network, it looks like you can, you know, dive down by state. So, for example, if you have a specific state where you're located and you wanted to support 
a black cemetery in that state. You know, there's the website to the organization that supports that cemetery. You could donate to that organization. You could donate to Mm -hmm. the Black Cemetery Network if you're interested in, in supporting these efforts. Also, it looks like the National Trust for Historic Preservation has a link where you can put in your support for the preservation of African-American burial grounds legislation that Dr. Jackson mentioned. And I know that there's lots of other organizations that are also, you know, working on this work or, or similar work that maybe should get a shout out at this point. So are there any other organizations that you want to mention if people are interested in, in making donations or other kinds of support? I would be remiss to not uh, mention my, two of my co-conspirator uh, collaborators, uh, both uh, the Black in Bioanth Bio Collective, the Black in Biological Anthropology Collective, as well as the Society for Black Archaeologists, two initiatives who I work very closely with and who are so amongst many other institu- uh, 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 coalitions, such as the Association for Black Anthropologists, who are just so deeply committed to using our anthropological, theoretical, and methodological practices to inform this in real time on the ground work to, to, to better better protect and preserve how we, uh, you know, both Black life in the past and present. So um, these are three, three coalitions, three, three groups that are, I would, that I really do need to, to uplift in, the, in this conversation. Yeah. And I, I would also like to make sure I named, like, like I said, I think in the beginning or early on, the African-American Cemetery Coalition out of North Carolina has, uh, is a very strong regionally focused group that have really been doing a lot of work on the, on the grassroots level to address some of the many concerns that we've talked about in this conversation. And in Tampa, the African-American Cemetery Alliance is a, a group of people who are different people in Tampa Bay area who are working on these uh, uh, issues. And uh, and then all of the people in the leadership team of the Black Cemetery Network, if you go out there, you'll see what a very uh, strong team of people I have and growing, anybody who wants to be part of it. But I would <laughs> like to thank all the people on the, on the, on, on the, the leadership team of the Black Cemetery Network uh, from their creative design of the network itself, Kaylee Hoyt, to the actual the spoken word, the creative artist, Walter Jennings, and all the other people on the Black Cemetery Network leadership, and you'll see that. And then the African-American Burial Ground and Remembering Project, which University of South Florida funded to work on the Zion Cemetery Project in the uh, Oakland, Evergreen, and Moffitt Cemeteries uh, in the St. Pete area. So those have been very, very influential in, to the work, to me, <laughs> and, and, and helpful and supportive and part of many of these kinds of projects that um, I've talked about today. So definitely want to give a shout out to those folks. Okay. So since we only have a couple of minutes left, is there anything that you're like, if I don't say this today, I will not forgive myself. (laughs) What, you know, if there's one thing that you want people to know about this topic or the people in the cemeteries or connected to the cemeteries, If there's one takeaway you wanted for people, what would it be? For me, again, the the main thing is Black cemeteries are Black history. One of the main ways to know and learn about Black folk and history is through the cemetery. And even before this project, oftentimes when I did research in different communities, I would go to the cemetery to learn family names and and things about the linkage between the cemetery and the church and, and those kinds of things. And that gave me entree into the community. And so learning about and restoring the history and heritage associated with these cemeteries help us to learn about our communities, learn about people in these communities that, you know, have often been forgotten that were integral parts of the history of different places. So it is essential that the preservation and stories about these families and folk associated with these cemeteries or buried in these cemeteries become known because this is an essential part of Black history. And to memorialize them is our, I, I think it is our, uh, really our sacred duty to bring this continuity. So I definitely want people to know that. And it's just more than a project. It is, is it's what must be done. Wow. Beautifully put. I don't know what more I can say on top of that. <laughs> um, um, but, um, 
that I, that I do try to get across, and I know it's like Safi mentioned earlier, is that the ways that we respect those who have passed is a reflection of how we honor those who are alive. And in no way, shape, or form is anyone's life better than, and more important than anyone else's. Why is it that there's so many uh, cemeteries for you know, those in power, if you will, put in, in, the, in broad scare quotes, um, that are still around since the 1800s, 1700s, whereas there are others who are being destroyed as we speak. You know, who's, and, and when, when we think about these, these matters, whose life are we saying is more important than someone else's? Is uh is what I try to is what I best try to articulate in uh and what I want people to take away the most from you know my efforts and the works around it. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on today. I I have a lot more questions, as you both know. We have a longer list than this, but you know, <laughs> sadly, n- never enough time to talk about all of the things. But I just want to say thank you again so much to Dr. Jackson and Deland for coming on the show today. And to close us out, we're going to be sharing one of the spoken word poems that was put together through the African-American Burial Ground and Remembering Project, which is a collaboration that Dr. Jackson mentioned between the University of South Florida and local artists. We're going to be sharing a, a spoken word poem called A Lullaby for Living Communities by Walter Jennings. And thank you to Mr. Jennings for, for allowing us to share. Hope you enjoy. If the peace of the deceased is disturbed, can there ever really be rest for the living? When children are haunted by the ghost of coffins, who will sound the trumpet in Zion? What lullabies or lies are sung to soothe their superstitions? How long is the distance between time to mourn and time to move on? Between progression and reverence? Shorter than a school bell? Longer than a military exercise? Do black lives matter even in death? When respect is denied amongst the land of the living, then building a future on their bones only requires removing a headstone, obtaining a permit, circumnavigating a state law, Oakland, Ridgewood, Evergreen, Moffat, St. Matthew, chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Truth never stays buried. Hope will find his voice no matter how faint. Love is resilient, always smart enough to leave a witness, a testimony, stories that were not lost or forgotten, but rather ignored and disregarded, clues to unlocking the mystery of its existence. Distant memories have become today's conscience. So ask yourself, are you really ready to be woke? What if everything that you know was built on the deception and deceit of others? What if we are ignoring Amber Alerts from the dirt? What if your giving tree was birthed by seeds that look like me? What if directly under your feet there were whole communities silenced in an effort to delete another painful chapter in America's complicated history? The past speaks. Are you listening? Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.